Um, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. It's uh, Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a, separ as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom of prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of those, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Before we had a baptism, we've been going through a series about meaningful membership. What does it mean to be a member of a church? One of those structural issues that has to do with meaningful membership, as we introduced a few weeks ago, there is institutional aspects of, church, of a church and church membership, and there are organic aspects. Today we'll be finishing up the institutional aspects, the bone structure on which the things that a church does hangs. Today we'll be looking at biblical baptism, appropriate since we are having a baptism today. Wanted to make sure that we have a good biblical understanding of what, it, what baptism is truly about. What does scripture say that baptism is? I will warn ahead of time this will not be exhaustive. There are many, many things. I love the theology of baptism. I've loved, as I've mentioned before, I love studying the theology of the church. That's one of the things that God has really given me a passion for in my, in my studies. There's a lot of things that, the, that is going on in, the, in all of Scripture, uh, with, with, uh, especially with imagery, uh, Old Testament imagery of, the, of baptism and how, how, how New Testament baptism is actually hearkening back to many aspects of the, of, of the Old Testament. Um, we won't get into all of that today, but I do want to share with you 
kind of piece by piece a biblical definition of baptism. This definition comes from uh, a man named Bobby Jameson in his book on understanding baptism. Uh, I thought this, this was a very appropriate, appropriate definition. But as we go through this definition, we'll break this definition down into pieces and we'll show how each of these parts of the definition reflects Scripture's teaching. So first of all, we see baptism is first a church's act. Baptism is first a church's act. Your blank there is act. If you turn to Matthew 28, this is where our main text will be. Matthew chapter 28. Verses 18 through 20. We're going to read this passage, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll jump, jump back into this definition. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we come to this passage that you would be glorified. Pray as we open up the scriptures and look throughout the New Testament to see what baptism is and what you have designed baptism to be. Pray, Lord, that would encourage us as we have our baptism today, that you would be glorified in what we do. Pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would guide us, guide our minds, and call us to respond. In your name, amen. Now off the top, I want to make sure that everyone is very clear. I'm not preaching and starting in Matthew 28 because Mike did a bad job. If you remember a couple months ago, Mike preached out of this same passage. It has nothing to do with the critique of Mike. It has everything to do with this is one of the best places to start with, our, with looking at what baptism is. So I'm not critiquing Mike. Um, in fact, what we're doing is there is there's actually so much going on in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We could probably spend six sermons delving into the depths of what that passage has going on in it. Uh, while Mike's was looking at the passage probably from the best area of what its context is speaking to um, is in, as far as a call to missions. There's also aspects in there that are smaller theological issues that are all tied into this call to missions, um, and, and one of them being baptism. When we come to Matthew 28, looking at this, first of all, this idea that, that baptism is a church's act, we cannot forget about Matthew 28 that Matthew 16 and 18 has already happened. A few weeks ago, we preached through Matthew 16, and the week after that, we preached through Matthew 18. Looking at how Christ gives the keys to the church, that one of the responsibilities a church has is affirming and declaring someone to be a believer publicly. The person may already be a believer, but what a church does is they say, this person is a believer and an official Jesus representative. We saw that Jesus gives the keys for that in Matthew 16 and 18. In Matthew 18, we see that where two or three are gathered, his spirit is there in the midst of them. When a congregation gathers together, no matter how small the congregation, no matter how large the congregation, there is power given to that congregation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is, first of all, a church's act. I've been to many churches and seen baptisms done where it's primarily described, and I want to be clear on this, this is not, that this is not the case, but it's primarily described as just a person's act. 
But I would argue to you today, and I would say that Scripture says to you today, that, the church, that baptism is primarily a church act. It is a congregation's act toward a believer. <clears throat> With understanding this, we need, we need to understanding, understand what's happening in Matthew 28's Great Commission. First, Jesus reminds us that he's the one with all the authority in heaven and on earth. Right? That's a point blank statement Jesus makes here. And Jesus said to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all the authority. Next, then he authorizes his disciples to baptize and make disciples in the name of the Father, himself, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Right, so there's this, there's this connection that gets on here. That if you look at verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. As Mike pointed out, the primary verb in this passage is to make disciples. Now, how do you make disciples? By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Right, these are the three things that come up in this passage. He authorizes them to, to make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he calls them to teach everything that he has commanded which is fulfilled in the ongoing teaching ministry of the local church. Right? He tells them, teaching them all to observe, in verse 20, all that I have commanded you. The job of the local church is to teach all that has been commanded. This is part of the making disciples process that Jesus lays out. And then finally, in the end of verse 20, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. He reaffirms that his authoritative presence is there in that church with Matthew 28 very much has the stipulations and authorizations of Matthew 16 and 18 in the background. Jesus didn't forget what he said back there, and neither should we. Another thing we need to understand about this being a church's act, the church does not have the authority to deny baptism to someone who gives evidence of conversion. The church has no authority. If someone was to come up and they show genuine conversion, the church has no authority to deny them baptism. So while the church does have some authority, it does not have authority to do that. We must keep that in mind. Baptism is, first of all, a church's act. Second part of the definition is a church's act of affirming and portraying. Those are your next blanks. Of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ. Baptism is a sign of the gospel's application. It is a sign that this person has turned from sin and has been united to Christ by faith. It also portrays these realities, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. If you look in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, describing baptism, this is what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is not only a church's act, it is also where the church affirms and portrays the believer's union with Christ. What we are doing in this act is we are saying, this is what is true about this person, that he is united with Christ. He is portraying and united with Christ in his death and resurrection, just as Romans 6.23 says. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 and 27 we see some similar language uh, brought out here in describing uh, our baptism in, in, in uh, Galatians chapter 3, 
verses 25 through 27, it says this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer already under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see, again, baptism is described as identifying it as a, as a representative of the believer's union with Christ. So it's not merely just getting wet. There is something actually going on there. Although we'll talk in a second about the limits of that something. Though through Christ our sins are forgiven and cleansed. Baptism signifies this. Through Christ we experience a new spirit-powered life and baptism's symbolic resurrection signifies this life. In baptism then a church affirms that someone who professes faith in Christ is in fact united to Christ and then the church dramatically depicts that union with all of its benefits through the baptism. Another thing I will mention here, baptism is always for believers only. Baptism is always for believers only. There's not a single clear instance of someone in the New Testament who is not a believer that is baptized. There's never a clear instance of someone who is not a believer that is baptized in the New Testament. If you are not a believer when you get baptized, then that baptism is not baptism. That was just getting wet. This is why we take a stand against things like infant baptism. It is impossible for an infant to to portray their faith in Christ. My son Curtis, at two years old, does not have the ability to express faith in Christ. Not true saving faith. Therefore, he should not be baptized. There is no evidence in the New Testament of any children or any babies getting baptized. It's just not there. You will not find it. Only those who have professed faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior, according to the New Testament, are qualified for baptism. Third part of our definition here, by immersing him or her in water. So not only is baptism, it's a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing them in water. Now again, as Baptists, this is something we have taken a strong stand on because of the way Scripture describes baptism. The Greek word baptizo literally means to dip, to plunge. The word baptizo means to dip, to plunge. The reason we have the word baptism, the word baptism is is really just putting English letters in place of the Greek letters for the most part. But what happened is that the church at the time in 1611 when that translation was being done, the church was baptizing infants by sprinkling. And the Greek scholars came across this word and said the word baptizo means to dip, to plunge. So what do we do here? Because we're not practicing that. And the powers that be at the time said just just make it the word baptism then. So in a sense, the word baptism is essentially a made-up English word to cover up for poor theology. Baptism, according to Scripture, the word baptizo means to dip, to plunge. Jesus, at his baptism, was described as coming out of the water. How do you come out of the water if you were never in the water to start with? 
when John the Baptist was baptizing, Scripture says in John 3.23 that the place he had chosen was an appropriate place because there was plenty of water. Why should there be plenty of water? Because you're going to be dunking them, right? You don't need a whole lot of water if you're just going to be sprinkling. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.36, when, he was, when Peter shared, the, or when, uh, when the gospel was shared with him, he said, look, there's water. What's stopping me from being baptized? And Philip told him, if you believe in Jesus, then yeah, we can go ahead and get baptized. There obviously wasn't enough water in the chariot that day for him to be baptized in the chariot. He needed to go out of the chariot into a body of water so he could be immersed in water. Further, we've already talked about how, how baptism portrays the our union with Christ. It's our identification with Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Only immersion depicts this. Sprinkling someone does not depict Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Notice how when we baptize someone, we, they're out of the water, they're dead in their sins, they have given their lives, they identify with Christ's death, then they are buried, they're put under the water. And when we, when we bring them back out of the water, that depicts Christ's resurrection. I'm not going to leave DeAndre under the water for three days, though, okay? It's not going to happen. We, I, don't think that'll, I don't think that'll work. We're not trying to do those kind of miracles here today. So uh, good news for you, DeAndre. <laughs> But we see there is no evidence of sprinkling or pouring in the New Testament. And what we see in the picture, immersion pictures this the best possible way. But not only is this a church's act, number three, number four there is part of our definition. It is also a believer's act. It is also a believer's act. In Acts chapter 2, we see the first time that Christians are called to be baptized. If you remember the scene, Peter had just gotten done sharing the gospel with this group of people. And they ask, so what do we need to do to be saved? He says, believe, and then be baptized. And how many people were baptized that day? 3,000 people were baptized that day. This is not just a church's act. It is a believer's act as well. They have to submit to the baptism. They have to do it. They go forward and they get baptized. It is an action on their part as well. We see that in Acts chapter 2. We read verse 37 to 39. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And verse 41, So those who received his word, those who got saved, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's a believer's act. Number five, it's a believer's act. What is the believer doing then? They are publicly committing him or herself to Christ. Baptism is how you go on record as a Christian. It is how you publicly profess your faith in and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. The outward action reflects the inward reality. That is part of what baptism is. It is an outward action that depicts an inward reality. It is an outward action of identifying with Christ and committing yourself to Christ that shows what you've already done on the inside, what you've already done in your, in your own heart and soul. 
Jesus actually makes a big deal about this in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus actually makes a claim that he's looking for public believers. He says in verse, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus will have none of this. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't tell anybody about that. I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to get baptized. I don't, I don't want to get up in front of people and tell people I'm a Christian. Jesus will have none of that. What he's looking for is believers who will profess their faith publicly. Jesus wants followers that everyone can see. Baptism is also not just about the profession of a prior commitment. It is also itself making a commitment. It is itself making a commitment. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 21, we have a probably, to some extent, infamous passage related to baptism. We'll walk through this fairly quickly, and hopefully we'll be able to have a better understanding of this passage. First uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 says this. Uh, Peter had just uh, wrote about how Noah and his family were saved through the waters of judgment, and then draws a comparison here. He, and he says here in verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That passage can, can bring some difficulty to it. When he says that baptism saves you, what he clarifies here is that what saves is not the physical washing, right? The getting wet, the cleansing dirt off your body, that actually, the washing that takes place in baptism, that's not the thing that saves you. Let me be clear with you. The water that is in this tank is from Gordon's water system. There's nothing special about it, except for the fact that it's from Gordon. Amen. Right? But there's other, otherwise, there's nothing, there's nothing special about this water. I didn't do some kind of, I didn't put some kind of magical powder in it to make it special and make it change something, because it's just water. Right? But it's what the faith of the believer is doing in this process that matters. Christ's resurrection, what we see here is, uh, we see this is, uh, uh, it's through the resurrection of Christ at the end of verse 21. Christ's resurrection is what powers our faith. It is not that there's any power or virtue in the faith itself. You can have faith in lots of things, but that faith does not save you. It is only the resurrection of Christ that powers saving faith. That's where the, where the power of faith comes from, is from Christ's resurrection. Instead, by faith, we take hold of the resurrection of Christ. The phrase here in verse, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, it says, it's also an appeal to God for a good conscience. This phrase could be taken as a petition or a promise or both. Both of these are present in baptism. Even if this verse is only highlighting, highlighting this idea of a petition or a promise, both are still present. Baptism is a petition, a prayer that gives voice to, the, to faith's plea. Save me, Lord Jesus, is what the person has already said. And baptism is giving voice to that claim. By identifying with Christ's death and resurrection and baptism, a believer publicly claims Christ as his or her Savior, asking God to make good on his promise to save. Baptism is a promise in that it publicly pledges submission to Christ as Lord. To be baptized into Christ's name is to submit to his authority. Baptism is an oath of allegiance to King Jesus. 
It is how you publicly swear faithfulness to him. In that sense, baptism itself is a promise to obey all that Christ commands. To be baptized is a sign on the dotted line under what Matthew 28 says, observe everything I've commanded you. You can't receive Jesus as Savior without revering him as Lord. In baptism, we take on the easy yoke that is also a cross walking in all the ways of Jesus. Baptism is where faith goes public. Number six here. We see it's, a, it's public commitment of him or, herself, him or herself to Christ. And number six, and also to his people. We already saw in Acts chapter 2 verse 41 how the people were baptized and were added to the church. Those who were baptized at Pentecost stepped out of the world and into the church. And so it is or so it should be with everyone who is baptized in today's day. The gospel not only reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles us to each other. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see this laid out. After describing in verses 1 through 10 the power of the gospel to reconcile you to God, to make the relationship with God right again, look what he says in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility he continues on here what is Paul getting at He is saying that in the gospel, not only are you reconciled to God, but social things. What he's talking about, circumcision and uncircumcision, these were social groups in the the New Testament times. He's saying those things are gone. In the gospel, there is unity among, among his people. No longer does it matter what color your skin is. No longer does it matter what your background is. No matter what does it, no longer does it matter if you're poor or rich. That doesn't matter anymore. In Christ, all his people are reconciled together. To be united to Christ is to become a member of his body, that is, his people. So in baptism, a believer commits him or herself to both Christ and his people. In putting on the team jersey, if you will, you commit to playing on the team. In baptism, you step out of the world and into the church. There's no in-between zone where you're with Jesus and not yet with his people. To join yourself to Jesus, according to the New Testament, is to join his people. Baptism, then, is a commitment to follow Christ in the company of his church. In baptism, a Christian commits to loving, serving, and submitting to Christ's people. That is why Baptists have typically added people who are baptized to their church membership. As we see in scripture, baptism and commitment to the local church ought to be tied together. 1 Corinthians 12 as well talks about the importance of, of, this, of this kind of concept here. It talks about the, um, the giftings that God has given to every individual Christian. 
Why does God give us gifts? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says because you're part of the body. You are given those gifts by the Holy Spirit to use to serve with the community of faith. What an offense to the Lord to be given those gifts and to sit on them by dissociating ourselves from the body of Christ. Finally, here in number seven of our de- part of our definition says, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. Thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. Baptism is not just a commitment by the person who believes, by the person being baptized to serve the local church, but it is also the church making a commitment to that person. The act of baptism conveys the believer's commitment where he says, I hereby pledge myself to Christ and to you, his people. And it conveys the church's commitment where we say, we hereby affirm your profession and pledge ourselves to you, a member of Christ's body. The church is saying to the world when it baptizes someone, this one belongs to Jesus. The church is also committing to aid the person in their walk with Christ and to help them grow to maturity. In a moment when we baptize DeAndre, he is making a commitment to us, but we are also making a commitment to him. We are telling him, we will walk with you. couple things baptism isn't that we need to clarify before we move forward. Baptism is not salvific. What I mean by that, baptism does not save you. This water will not make you more of a Christian, as if somehow Christ was lacking. There are groups of churches that believe that these waters, whether by sprinkling or pouring or, or, or even by dunking like we would do, that somehow this water makes you more saved, that you are not completely saved apart from the water. Let me be very clear. To make such a theological claim is to tell Jesus that his sacrifice on the cross was not enough. It's a dangerous game to play. Baptism does not save. So when DeAndre is baptized in a second, he's not more saved when he comes out of the water than he was before he went into the water. Jesus already took care of that in his life. Second, baptism is not just a human tradition. This isn't something that we just invented and say, hey, you know, whatever, we'll do this whole baptism thing. Why not? This is a command given by Christ. And it must not be rejected or made little of. 